Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa aparuta de sangamatasa tavaraya sorawanta so since this is the end of the Pansa, the Wasa period, And I thought I'd talk about paying attention to the ending of sankharas, of conditions. This is a, a good practice to develop, to notice, to be the knower of endings of conditions, of emotions, of thoughts, of feelings, of traditional forms like vasa, day and night, end of the year, because life as you live it is full of beginnings and endings. It's all about coming together, separating, something beginning must end. This is the law of karma, cause and effect. So the karma is about sankharas. <clears throat> Their very nature is impermanent and there's no separate soul or permanent individual self residing in any sankara, no matter how personal some sankaras might seem at times. They are empty phenomenon and uh, this is, this has to be verified. This is not a belief that Buddhists must accept. It's an investigation. Yonisomanasekara, getting to the very source, to the very, where things begin and end. So where does, where do things begin and so, and where do they end? What, you know, when something begins, we, often, we have, uh, we're conditioned to identify with, with our birth. I was born so many years ago. We always celebrate our birthdays because that's the beginning uh, that we con traditionally, conventionally recognize as the beginning of our life, which none of us can remember. But as you grow older, you, you're more aware of the ending of the life of this form that we strongly identify with, the human body. And so the body is something to investigate, to pay attention to, not in terms of vanity or personal uh, identity is whether it's beautiful, ugly, young or old, male or female. Because whatever gender you might be, matter what age or race or nationality, bodies are sankharas. They have a beginning, they have an ending. Today we're celebrating the ending of a convention that is part of Theravada Buddhism, traditional convention called the Vasa, or in Thailand, the Pansa. So how do, you, how do you witness the ending of something? So this talk is an encouragement to, to be aware of the, you know, the feeling that arises when we did our pavar and our ceremonies this morning. Something completed, something that began three months ago and ends today is like this. 
So it's, it's like this is our way of reflecting, not about how good your pansa was or how confused or miserable it was or how fast it went or how slow it seemed to drag on or whether you enjoyed it or had insight or you, you didn't have any insight, you know, then this is the, the self view, you know, about personal feelings regarding at this moment, at the, at the traditional ending of the pansa, your own personal take on what happened, you know, it's, it's individual. Because you can't expect everybody to have the same experience for three months. We share the same convention, like in the, this at Amravati or in the Wat Pong in Thailand, Sri Lanka, and Buddhist countries, Theravada and Buddhist countries share the same convention. So the convention is is not really personal. It's not something I I established or is my my conventional form or my genius that created Theravada Buddhism or Pantha. It was established many more years before this body was ever conceived of. So it's a convention, a custom, a tradition. So traditions are impermanent and not self, like all sankharas. So the word sankara is a useful term, it's a generic term for all conditioned phenomena, which includes everything. <clears throat> but what is unconditioned? What is the unconditioned here and now, you know? If everything is conditioned, if everything is, is a sankara, everything follows the law of karma, birth creates the experience of death. People wonder why people, you know, when somebody dies, there's this sense why they were so young, why did they have to die so young, or what, you know, we, we wonder, why there's so many deaths and you hear the news in the morning about the deaths of so many people in the Middle East or in Africa or even here in the UK. How many COVID deaths have, have happened during this three month Pantha period in the UK alone? You know, we're quite interested in, in, in enumerating and, and wondering about the number of personal, individual deaths of so many bodies. So death is a mystery. What happens when you die? What happens at the end of a lifetime? What happens at the end of a pantha? And so today we think about, what am I going to do next after uh, today when the pansa ends? <clears throat> so we think about the future. You know, so as long as we're identified completely with this mortal form, the human body, then we, we tend to think about the future is where, you know, I'll find enlightenment, I'll, be, I'll get samadhi, I'll get wisdom, I'll practice until I'm fully enlightened, or maybe you doubt that you'll ever get enlightened. Um, you can, you know, you can hold ideas that you're, you're too uh, confused a person to ever get enlightened. These are all creations of the human mind in whatever language you conceive yourself in, it's all illusions because they're like phantoms that arise and cease. The sense of myself as a separate person is, is like a phantom that I believe in. You know, that my true nature is, is uh, Ajahn Sumedho, phantom soul 
that's an illusion. You know, I can create it into a real fantasy. So that's why the world is the way it is, why there's so much political turmoil, wars and problems, marital problems, family problems, sangha problems, because of this, this uh, a kind of fixed belief, unbending belief in, in sankharas as our reality, as the real world. When we talk about the world as an illusion, you know, then we st that makes us wonder because this temple with its brick walls and its oak structure doesn't seem, you know, it seems very real. So when we talk about the real world in ordinary terms, it's the material world, the human forms, the wars, the political systems, the, the ideals that we create in our mind with language, that we, you know, we, we believe in. We, we put our trust, our faith, or our, our, our cynicism, our doubts, our disappointments in life due to the cha changing conditions of the sankharas that inevitably disappoint us because their very nature is to be that which begins ends. So just by reflecting on your own mental state right now, it's like this. Whether you're confused by what I'm saying or you find it interesting or boring, it's, it is the way it is. But then what isn't a sankara? If everything's a sankara, that means everything's a sankara, everything. A thing is a sankara. So in the English language, you know, everything, the things are, the, the, the world of sankaras, the mountains, the, the continents, the oceans, the populations of the planet, every thought, every feeling, the seasons changing, the sun and moon and stars, all sankaras. So they all share this, this characteristic of impermanence. And when we talk about anatta, that means they're not personal. Do not take yourself, your, your self-views personally. Do not make your life a personal problem. Do not make, however you're going to live it, you know, as, as a person, there's always problems. Life isn't particularly a, an easy experience for, for anyone. And it, you know, as idealistic as we can identify, uh, even ideals are impermanent. So we think society or sangha life or relationships should be fair and all that, that's, a, that's an ideal. So there's endless problems because it isn't always fair where it should be according to our, they're clinging to the ideal of fairness. Because how can sankharas be permanently fair? You know, they have not that ability to sustain themselves into a completely immutable state of fairness and justice and equality. The conditioned realm is, is about change, incessant change that's going on at this very moment. But what isn't a sankara? So, as I've mentioned many times, one of my favorite 
scriptural sayings is there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So this, when I read this years ago, as a Samanera, it really fascinated me. I thought that it kind of gave me hope. There is an escape from the born, the created, the form, the condition. Because even before I met Lung Po Cha, I had this feeling of, of kind of desperation that life didn't have any meaning or purpose to it. And all, it, all you do is grow old, get sick, and die, is one way of, of looking at terrible uh, Buddhist teaching. But what is the unborn, unconditioned, uncreated, unformed? So it, it, I made up this kind of koan or conundrum. Is there something unconditioned, permanent? If everything is impermanent, just to challenge my mind state, because I didn't doubt the Buddha's teaching, but investigating Dhamma means to challenge your mind, to, to not just try to grasp the scriptural teachings and believe in them, but they're all teachings for investigation. Dhamma vichaya, one of the factors of enlightenment. So the Buddha's teaching is a is a skillful means for investigating the world, the reality, the body, the personalities that we have, our emotional problems, our views, our cultural conditioning. It's not about getting rid of or making value judgments about them, but just noticing that whatever they are, whether they're pleasant, painful, good or bad, big or small, right or wrong, they, they do change. And noticing that things end, you know, the average person doesn't really investigate the ending of conditioned phenomena of sankharas. Usually, you know, I found in my own life, before I had any insight into Dhamma, was as soon as something ended, I was on to the next thing. What's next? What do I do next? So, you know, the, the ending or the ending of things, if some, some person you loved or were close to died, what happens to, to them when they die? What is death about? Death is, uh, you know, the ending of, of this, this human body. When we talk about death, it's about death of the body. So the body, you know, decays and either you cremate it or bury it, but whatever it does, it's, you know, it becomes nothing in particular but a few ashes or a rotting corpse in the ground, which are not particularly, you know, uplifting perceptions. So then, many of us who were brought up as Christians were uh, believed in a soul, a separate soul. So this was part of my cultural conditioning. And uh, this was that a soul is is uh, is a very personal thing. Each person here has a separate soul that survives the physical death of the body, and that soul is judged after the body dies as if how good you've been or how bad you've been. You you get to to, to the relative places that take uh, that uh, called heaven and hell. So that's imagination, isn't it? Those are, those are words, concepts that we create about the mystery of what happens when the body dies. 
What happened to my mother and father, they both died a long time ago. So when I went to my mother's funeral years ago in 1989, the Roman Catholics, the priest said, Helen Jackman is now in heaven with Jesus. And of course that makes you feel good. You know, everybody wants, you know, my mother was a very good person, so I thought, if anybody's in heaven with Jesus, it's Helen Jackman. And this was, <laughs> but as a Buddhist monk, you know, I, I found it not very helpful in investigating the reality of what's happened. Nobody was addressing the issue of grief, of the feeling of loss when somebody you love passes away. It was all about she's in heaven with Jesus, which is a very pleasant perception. But that's what it is. And how did he know? He didn't really know my mother that well. <laughs> but it's a nice thing to say to comfort the feeling of the moment. Make them feel good because it's not that it's a lie, but it, it's, not, it's not facing what's really happened, how you feel at this moment. And what I really enjoyed about Thailand, the Buddhist funerals in Thailand, was that they were used as an opportunity to reflect on death. So the first cremation I saw at Wat Wapong, when I was a new monk, was that before Wat Wapong had a crematorium, they built that later, they used to just uh, burn a human body on uh, on a pile of wood. And during that first year that I was there, a village woman died, she was an old woman, and they built a wooden coffin, just uh, planks, wooden planks nailed together, very crude. They put it on top of this pyre, <clears throat> and Lung Pa Chai encouraged us to go and look at the at the corpse, which was, you know, rigor mortis. It was not, there was no attempt to beautify the corpse. You know, there was no, it wasn't any pearl earrings in her ears or lipstick, just an old village woman, kind of stiffened with rigor mortis, which you could contemplate. Well, I found that quite helpful to, to really look at what was going on at that very moment, here and now, in my own mind, because I'd never seen anything like that. So Lung Po Chai encouraged us to meditate on the death. And it's not depressing. When you face reality, when you challenge the conventions of any, any phenomena, then you, you know, you're, you're not judging them. It's not about right or wrong anymore, but it's about the way things are. And of course, these are easily summed up in these two sentences, Sape, Sankara, and Echa, all conditions are impermanent. Sapetamanada, all Dhamma is not a personal self. So, what is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? And you can't find it as an object. You know, you can't, because everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, is condition. So the senses themselves are impermanent and unsatisfactory. The, so the senses, you know, are not the, the sen sensual world that we're experiencing through these forms. It is a changing, re relentlessly changing phenomenon 
And that's the way it is. And, but what is aware of change? What is it that is aware of change? And so that must be the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. But what is it? Because it, there's no name for it. You know, you use a, a negative. Instead of born, you say unborn, unconditioned, uncreated, because there's no separate identity, identical name for unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. But if the Buddha, when he says it, his atibhikwe, ajatang, aputang, akatang, asankatang, his atibhikwe is a statement of certainty. It's not a theoretic, a theory the, the Buddha proclaimed. Because there is the unborn, it's a proclamation, it's a pointing. It's not, I think, you know, I believe in something called unconditioned unborn. That would not be very helpful. It was very, I, this Ati Bikaway always impressed me as a very clear state assertion of reality. So if, if you have trust in the Buddhist teaching, then what is it? You can't imagine it. You can imagine heaven or hell right now sitting here in the temple. You can imagine any, but then heaven and hell are conditioned phenomena. You know, the, the words themselves are words the judgments about good behavior and bad behavior, or happiness and misery. So phenomena is all about heaven and hell, good and bad, right and wrong. It's dualistic, you know, the whole language structure of every single language, including Pali and Sanskrit, English and any other language, is, is based on right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, male and female, day and night. Everything has a name. We give a name like this is the autumn season here in England. Does the season itself, does it announce itself? Does it say, I have arrived, I'm autumn? No, we say autumn has arrived. Winter has arrived, spring, summer. These are words that we project onto the experience of the changing of seasons here in the UK. So what is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? And then I would question, can the born, the created, the form, condition, really, really, you know, it judges the conditions we create in our mind. We have, you know, good and bad, right and wrong. So with language, we make value judgments. But without language, are there any value judgments? There's change. But what is aware of change? What is aware of the ending, the beginning or ending? What doesn't have a beginning or ending? These are, these are the koans, the conundrums that, that I would ask myself. And through asking in this way, it's kind of investigating and kind of relentless questioning. If there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, what is it? You let go of the condition, the form, the created, because it gets you nowhere in solving the problem. Because the born, the created, the form, the condition doesn't have any sense, any language, any perception for the unborn, uncreated, except a negation of itself. So if you stop thinking,
then what is there? And that's why I encourage this, gaps between the words or the sound of silence. Because the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned is here and now. It's not, not, my, not something I create or the Buddha created. It's not a theory or a perception. It's conscious awareness here and now. So it's what we truly are. It's our, this great gift, the gate to the deathless. That is the, gives us, you know, it's, it's what we are ultimately, because if we're not the form, the created, the born, the conditioned, Where do we end up? In oblivion? In annihilation? In some kind of nihilistic theory? Because some people accuse the Buddha of being nihilistic or annihilationist, which is just a negation, isn't it? An English word for the negation of the created, the form, the condition. So then, insight arises. Suddenly, when you let go of all your perceptions, all your value judgments, all your opinions, views, condition, right or wrong, good or bad, what's left when there's, when there's no attachment to any condition is conscious awareness. And that's here and now. I didn't create it. It's not, a, it's not created. It's unborn. It doesn't have a beginning or ending. So you begin to notice this, use this as a path way, a way of path knowledge, of trusting it. So in, in monastic life, which I found very helpful for developing this kind of insight because you know this, this way that we were taught in Thailand with Lung Po Cha was incredibly skillful and in, in every practical way so it wasn't just becoming a Theravada Buddhist monk and believing in Buddhism it was nothing like that but it actually was very practical and challenged one's own conditioning all the time. Being a, an American, the first foreigner in Lumpa Cha's Sangha, you know, is you had to deal with the, the problems of learning to adjust to a totally different culture, different way of life, different language, different food different assumptions. So there was, you know, there's a challenge to, to the American conditioning, to the Christian conditioning, not in any direct way, but, you know, one always operated from the way you were conditioned. The personality view, how you saw yourself as a separate person. So in a Sangha of Thai monks, with the only Western monk present, you know, you, you stand out because I was much taller than the rest and, and I was a, a new experience for everybody. So this, crea this creates all kinds of confusing emotions and uh, Ajahn Chah's skillful way of teaching wasn't trying to convert me or make me into a Thai monk or, you know, become a Buddhist monk, but investigating with the Four Noble Truths, suffering its causes and non-suffering. So in the Four Noble Truths, the suffering is a condition. 
because we suffer all the time from the changing conditions that we're experiencing. Growing up is suffering, childhood, teenage, adolescence, youth, middle age, old age, it's all changing and, and you know, we try to control the conditions to make our lives as pleasant as possible. You know, people take to all kinds of drugs and alcohol because you have moments of peace or quiet or at least a change from the dreariness of average daily life. Because daily life is boring. You know, as long as you try to, to uh, make it interesting, you know, you read books or watch television or, you know, try to create interesting relationships or, or you know, there's endless distractions to, to, to get you out of the boredom and dreariness of, con of consciousness and the way we, of consciousness uh, within, that we identify as within the form. So consciousness in the form, we see the form is, is a conscious form. Consciousness is inside the form, so it makes it very separate. So consciousness is something very personal. So when the, the body dies, the consciousness leaves the body, is how I generally used to interpret it. But then, with reflection on Dhamma, you begin to see the body leaves consciousness. The, the senses no longer have objects to, uh, they no longer function. They go, you go blind, deaf, dumb, can't smell anything, don't feel anything. The body just a uh, piece of meat that'll just decay unless you cremate it. But when I say, uh, when I lead these t talks about aparuta desanga matasa tawara, the statement the Buddha, is another proclamation the Buddha made after his enlightenment. The gates to the deathless are open. What is the deathless? Was that just some kind of make you feel good statement? You know, was Buddha just trying to make us feel good, give us hope? Or was it a statement of truth and reality? What is the, what is the gate to the deathless? It's to be investigated. What is deathless here and now? that is not a thing you can conceive or see, hear, smell, taste, touch, that you can create thoughts about. So it's conscious awareness, and each one of us has that. You know, we're consciously aware now. Like a dead body is no longer consciously aware as a form. But these forms, sitting here in the temple, are all conscious, in consciousness. And is the consciousness <clears throat> that we're in personal? If, if I perceive consciousness as inside my body, then it becomes very personal. You become separate from me. And then I see you in terms of whether I like you, don't like you, approve, disapprove, accept, or don't accept. Because the personal conditioning is about right and wrong, good and bad, acceptable, unacceptable. But if I stop doing that, stop operating, stop operating from thoughts, from habits, from conditioning, I can still see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, and feel, but suddenly those conditions are not what I identify with anymore. 
I can conventionally identify with them, so I answer to my name and so forth and operate within the structures of monastic life, the Vinaya and, and that, because that's, that's the agreement uh, that you make when you ordain. But, uh, and there's nothing, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong about it. It's just a convenient lifestyle for reflection. So mindfulness, the path to the deathless, Upamadova Matapadang, in the Dhammapada, my favorite verse from Dhammapada, mindfulness path to the deathless. Pamado Matunopadang, heedlessness is the path to death. Matunopadang, Padang means path or way. So that's conscious awareness here and now. That's the path to the deathless. As simple as that. It's not, you can't find it because that's what you really are. If you give up all your other identities, all your illusions, all your concepts and perceptions, biases and views and opinions, there's nothing left but conscious awareness that you can't find because... It's here and now, and you're in the here and now. It's in the here and now. It's timeless. So these are very clear teachings. But like so many religions, Buddhism as other religions, tend to suffer from is that you, you grasp the teachings without investigating them. So you get what we call religions, about the, our belief systems, allegiances that we grasp and, and don't investigate the reality of the here and now, the reality of conscious awareness. We don't awaken to that. We just operate from a system of maybe uh, metaphysical theories or ideals or religious doctrines. And of course, they're different. So all the religions are different. You know, they're, they're why they tend to make value judgments about each other because they they put everything in a, in their own perceptual habit forms that make Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, and all the rest something, you know, to see them as enemies or something opposite or not good and not as good or even evil. So we make value judgments from our own blind grasping of our particular conditioned view. And that's why there's religious wars even amongst Buddhists, there's so many views about Mahayana, Hinayana, Theravada, Vajrayana. You can have conflicting relationships with other Buddhists about just the, the teachings of the Buddha. Not to mention any other religion that seems to get caught in internal struggles, sectarianism. Where does that come from, from the thinking process? If I believe I'm right, then if you don't agree with me, you, then you're an enemy, you're wrong. Becomes very black and white. And if you're an enemy, then I, you know, after, I'm afraid of you, you're a threat to me personally. But if your refuge is in Dhamma, then there's no threat because you no longer believe grasping right and wrong, good and bad, or my way is the right way, or your way is wrong. 
you no longer function from that. You know, you're no longer creating prejudices or biases in your mind. Or if you do, you see through them. Because it's your conditioning, you know, your cultural conditioning, your class identities, gender identities, they're all conditioned views. But in unity or wholeness or completeness, the Dhamma is complete. When we even say perfect, perfect has its opposite of imperfect. But perfect is about as good as you can get, or it's whole or complete. Dhamma is inclusive of everything. All the changing phenomena arise and cease in Dhamma. So we call them the Dhammas, Kusla Dhamma, Kusla Dhamma, Apya Gata Tama. There's good, neutral, and bad Dhammas. But Dhamma, when we take refuge in Dhamma, Dhamma, that's a, a beautiful thought, a beautiful concept. But to see it in, that in such a personal way is still a challenge because do I, Ajahn Sumedho, take refuge in the Dhamma? It sounds you know, like me as a person? Or is Dhamma the refuge that I am? So this is a question to ask yourself. Can my personality, Ajahn Sumedho personality, take refuge in Dhamma? On a conventional level, yes. So we, we give the, the uh, three refuges to people who ask for them. And it's a convention that's quite, you know, it has its point. It's, for a convention, it's very useful. But it, the, the point of the scripture, the suttas especially, is for investigation. Not to just create faith and, and trust in scriptural teachings, but to actually apply them to the reality that we are in the present, here and now. So when you observe the endings, like a thought itself, it doesn't last very long, does it? When you, when you intentionally think, deliberately think of one word, just the English pronoun I, just one letter, simple enough. So you, you intentionally think, I, and what, you know, then stop there and observe the ending. I, it just goes very quickly. It can't sustain itself. And if you don't follow it with them, there's still awareness. What is that? The space between I and M. Do you create that space? Is that a cultural conditioning? You know, is that particularly Buddhist? Is the space between the pronoun I and the verb M? Is that Buddhist or is it special to the English language or Thai or French or any other language? Pali, these sacred ancient languages from India? Pali, Sanskrit? So any language, it works. You know, the space is, is not cultural. It's not English or Thai, Sri Lankan. But it can be completely ignored because we're conditioned to go, I am Ajahn Sumedho. I am a Buddhist monk. And so on a conventional level, that's conditioned because I didn't always identify with that. 
I chose to be identified with this tradition by ordaining as a monk. But what is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? Is as simple as that awareness, space, it gives you that perspective. Because you're aware, of, there's still awareness, full awareness, full conscious awareness when you stop with I. And just my, even though it's hard to sustain that kind of emptiness, as you keep repeating it over and over till you suddenly, it, it clicks, suddenly the, it makes sense. You have an insight into it. You're not trying to believe Ajahn Sumedho's teaching or Buddhist teaching or about space and the gaps between words, but you're actually noticing awareness of its, of emptiness, of non-thought, the ending of a thought. Apply that to emotions. Because emotions, we're very emotional creatures. We identify so strongly with what we're feeling. We've got to deal with greed, hatred, and delusion. With greed, sexual desire, with anger, with resentment, with jealousy, fear, all these things. There's so much, you know, in the conditioned realm to be afraid of. If you see everybody as separate from yourself, if I believe I'm a totally separate independent individual as a physical form, then there's a sense of fear of everybody. Because you're all a threat. You know, whether you approve of me or don't like me or you, you want to kill me or you want to hug me. You know, how much of your life is spent in trying to get people to like you because of fear if they don't like you. Just, you know, reflecting on the, the life of a personality, of your own personality. Wanting your parents' love, your mother and father's attention. Wanting to be approved of by the teachers, by friends, by your colleagues. You know, in fear of being humiliated, fear of embarrassment, fear of failure. This is what motivates society and, and the systems that we live in. Just the idea of I've got to prove myself to you, to the world, as a separate physical form that's, going to, is, that's old already and going to die in a few years. You know, it's quite interesting being old because you, you look back at your life and you can reflect on, on you know, all the assumptions you've made as a lay person, as a monk. And how you've used the systems for personal endorsement. One thing I found I liked about living with Ajahn Chah was I felt really loved by Ajahn Chah, felt really accepted. I never felt that in my own family in America. So and strangely to go to an Asian country and find Lung Po Chah who seemed to just accept me, you know, completely, was quite a, you know, a kind of wonderful experience and taking it very personally as, you know, feeling I'm special. Because I was special. I was the only Western monk in the Sangha then. 
And then feeling special is a very nice feeling if, you're, if you feel that you're not special or that nobody likes you. So all these are common enough because they're based on accepting, unaccepting, good and bad, right and wrong, which we are strongly conditioned to, to never question, to operate always from these perceptions. So finding a family in Thailand was quite uh, inspiring. That's why I stayed there so long. But it gave whole meaning to the monastic system because, you know, it was, uh, I liked the way of life. I liked being a monk. And in those days, Wat Bapong was very, wasn't a, didn't have, a, you know, a very basic kind of lifestyle. I didn't mind that. I didn't mind any of that. The kind of primitive lifestyle we lived. Because uh, it gave me hope that there's a way out of suffering. There's a way out of the born, the created, the form, the condition. Because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So with emotions, whatever they might be, you feel confident or frightened, insecure, doubting, uncertain, whatever they might be, you're aware of them. People say, I have a lot of fear or I'm very confused. So that shows you're very much aware that your mental state is, is a confused one or a frightened one. But that awareness, you know, the mental state is, has, that quali- has a quality of fear or confusion. But awareness, if you trust the awareness of it, confusion is like this or fear is like this. You're not trying to get rid of it or indulge in it, but accept it. It's, it's here and now, it's what you're, the, the awareness is focused on this feeling of fears like this. And if you sustain that attention till the fear ends, because fear is impermanent and not self. So then you, you have this sense of fearlessness, because the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned is fearless. It has no quality of fear in it. Condition phenomena, it can still arise and cease as according to con- the conditioned realm. But your refuge is, is with the unborn, unconditioned, unformed. So with thoughts, perceptions, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, what we think, all these are conditions. They're all impermanent and not self. So what is our refuge is in awareness, conscious awareness, which is not self. And that's not, that means it's impersonal, it's here and now, it's uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So when you keep reflecting in it, it has to be like, I used to compare it to a rat chewing through a wall. You keep going till you break through. So in the challenges of life, the different experiences that we have in monasteries or wherever we happen to be, 
you know, the refuges in the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So we use what we experience through the senses because we know what it is. We know it's impermanent and not self. And suddenly it loses its importance. The world with all its problems, climate change, COVID-19 pandemic problems, personal problems, relationship problems, national, international, global, universal problems, are the born, the created, the form, the condition. But what is unconditioned, the, it doesn't suffer. The unconditioned is freedom, is peace, contentment. We, because we find ourselves content. Inside we feel a sense of contentment and kind of joyfulness that is the very nature of conscious awareness. So I offer this as a reflection. <laughs> 